the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? Uh, so I, I realized that we left off a few verses there. I neglected to tell our bulletin maker that I'm actually going up to verse 14. We changed uh, some of the reading. So if you happen to have a copy of the scriptures on your phone or uh, you know the paper copy or whatever, you might want to turn there because we are going to reference verses 8 through 14 as well. That wasn't Russ's fault. It's my fault. Um, my apologies for that. Well, this week at my house, one day, uh, I was puttering around the kitchen before my children came down for breakfast, and a podcast I'd been listening to had just finished, and I decided I'm going to turn on the Song of Songs playlist on Spotify, where this, these people read the Bible to you or whatever. So I've made a playlist, and I've been listening to it to get ready for this series. So I put it on, and no sooner had the playlist started than uh, my, my kids come, you know, thundering down the stairs. I don't know if your kids thunder downstairs, but that's what happens in my house. And, and, as, and as they come into the kitchen... A woman's voice was reading verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And I felt like I, I, I froze. I felt like I'd been caught, you know, listening to something or looking at something kind of racy. And I instinctively went to turn it off, thinking, oh, this sort of thing is unfit, you know, for the ears of children. Now think about how interesting that is. I had a reaction, almost on, the, on an instinctive level, that listening to a section of the scriptures would be unhelpful or, or, or strange, awkward for my children. Now, they wanted to listen to their story, so we changed it anyways, but here's my point. Lots of us don't know what to do with the Song of Songs. Like, it's in the Bible, like, we know it's there, uh, but we either ignore it, or we giggle over it, or are deeply confused by it, scandalized by it. We aren't sure if children should listen to it. I can't personally recall ever hearing a sermon about it. And so that's kind of going on over here, but then over here, we have a culture and a world that's increasingly sexualized in just about every way. Porn continues unabated. Uh, discussions of gender and sexuality, they're happening at younger and younger ages. Hookup culture, like the whole thing, every little piece, it's bewildering. And I think it's incredibly challenging now if you're a single person hoping to be married or if you're a married person trying to cultivate a healthy relationship with your spouse. We have these two worlds that are starkly different. And I think as these two worlds collide and as they overlap in various ways, I don't think it's enough to say along with the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Now, that, that commandment is good, and it's right, and it's true, but, it, but it's actually not enough to give us guidance for the world we live in, because it's only the negative side of the equation. It's only what you shouldn't do. Where's the positive side? What should we do? What could we do? Well, that's where we enter the, the confusing world of the song of, song, a song of Songs, where it's God's wisdom for us on all these issues. Now, this series is, you know, slightly terrifying to me, <laughs> but, but I think it's going to be really helpful at this moment. It's like one of those conversations uh, you, don't, you don't enjoy having, but you know you need to have. 
And so over the next six or seven weeks, we're going to have awkward but important conversations together about this book, diving into what God's wisdom is on marriage and sexuality for our time. So without further ado, I have three parts to today's text. First, whose song? Second, her desire. Third, his affirmation. So the ESV, our preferred translation, calls this book the Song of Solomon. Uh, which I disagree with, and I'll tell you why in a second. And I always hesitate to like argue with a bunch of really smart Bible scholars with multiple PhDs or whatever. Uh, but I think the title is confusing because does the song belong to Solomon? Is it his or is it about him? Well, verse one, it says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And so the book actually gives itself the title, the Song of Songs. What is it? It's the Song of Songs, um, but it belongs possibly to Solomon. We'll talk about that in a second. And when it calls itself the Song of Songs, what it, what it, what it means, it's, it's, a, it's a superlative. It's the finest of songs. There may be many great songs. This one eclipses them all. Like the Holy of Holies in the temple, it's a superlative. It is, that's referring to the most holy place. So this book is the finest of songs. Now, why is that important? Well, I think that title helps us understand all the things that follow. If this song is the finest, can it only be about human romantic love? Well, the answer is no, because not everyone experiences human romantic love. And many of us are left wanting when it comes to our experience of romantic love. Can it be about our love for God? Well, no, because that love is imperfect as well. See, in some ways, if this is to truly be the song of songs, it must be about human love, but it must also be about God's love for his people. The song must somehow point us to Christ in the midst of desire we're going to see some signposts that point us to Jesus. But I also think this book should be called the Song of Songs because of the story it contains. See, there are many contrasting opinions about who is in this book. Is it Solomon? Is it Solomon and his first wife? Is it someone else? The problem with it being Solomon is that, uh, Solomon being the male figure in the book, is that he had a pretty checkered romantic life. Um, you, you may not know his story, but basically he started with one wife, you know, whatever, that was fine. But in the book of Kings, it tells us he ended up with hundreds of wives and thousands of other women that he called concubines that he slept with. He's not really the model for Christian romantic love. So I think the best answer about who wrote this book and who they wrote about is I think Solomon wrote it as a meditation on love starring two unknown and sort of idealized people, this unnamed man and unnamed woman. They're never given names. We don't know who they are. And I like to picture Solomon maybe as an old man looking back across a life of extreme excess when it came to sex and romance, and now he's spelling out the lessons that he failed to heed. Maybe he's even talking about the life he wished he would have lived. Maybe this book is even a kind of repentance. I don't know. Ultimately, we don't know. And so therefore, on some level, it's not extremely important. We can understand the meaning of the book without knowing. But here is how I basically translate this, the first line. This is the finest of songs. It belongs to Solomon. It was written by him. And in this book, we will learn from a man who had, who had everything he wanted when it came to sex and love. But he messed it up. And he's giving us wisdom on how to avoid his mistakes. He wants to teach us how to cultivate love between a man and a woman. Now, one other note before we kind of get into the, the teeth of the chapter here. The, the relationship depicted in this book is heterosexual. And the reason we know this is because Hebrew has gendered words. And so when we look at the original language, we can see, oh, the woman is speaking here, the man is speaking here. And it's clear that their attraction, their interest, their desire is for one person of the opposite sex. 
Now this reflects teaching found all throughout the scripture that God's intent for his people is one man and one woman to be joined together. Homosexual attractions and behaviors of various sorts, they're acknowledged as a reality in the world, but are not part of God's plan. It's called the sin on a number of occasions. So we will be taking what some might call a heteronormative view. All that means is we are assuming God's design for the world in the Song of Songs. And if you have questions about that, concerns, whatever, I'd be glad to talk about more. I'm not going to spend any more time there now. So let's move on. Two features of this text. The first I've termed her desire. This is part two. And if you look at verse two, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So the book has no preamble. There's no backstory. We don't begin with a scene where she's, you know, riding a horse through a field or, or working as a school teacher. The book simply opens with a line that seems to spring from her diary, from her secret thoughts. She wants to be kissed by him. There's no shame attached to this desire, no second guessing. She's a woman who knows what she wants. Now, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, kisses were common as a greeting. Uh, a kiss on the cheek was common, the double kiss. We actually have some evidence to suggest that ancient Egyptians did, did the nose kiss, you know, where you rub noses together. Uh, but here, she isn't interested in those kinds of kisses. She doesn't want a casual hello kiss. She wants the kisses of his mouth. She wants romantic kisses. This is an expression of desire. She wants something from him, and really, she wants him. Still in verse 2, she says, Your love is better than wine. Now, love is a polite way to render the Hebrew word dod, uh, which in other places this appears in the Old Testament, especially in its plural form, which it is here. It's just often translated caress. And it refers to like an intimate form of touch, an even sexual kind of touch. She tells us his caress is better than wine. And a wine, of course, it's a symbol of the good life, a symbol of the blessing of God. She says, your, your loving touch, it's better than that. And so she longs for him here. In verse 3, she remembers how he smelled the last time he was near, like, like a girlfriend who has stolen her boyfriend's hoodie or something. She, she recalls his anointing oils. It's a kind of cologne. The way he smells is good to her. These first three lines are very physical and visceral, but she longs for him and she desires him. And it's not just his presence, his touch that she wants. She praises his name. She says, your name is oil poured out. Now, a person's name in the Old Testament was not just a title to be called, something you yell across a field, but it's a representation of who someone is. A name is a kind of summation of a person's character. The psalmist will tell us that God's name is a strong and mighty tower. Now, how can a name be a tower? Well, because God's name represents all that he is. In the same way, then, this man she longs for, not just a good kisser, not just sweet-smelling, but he is the kind of man that everyone thinks is kind and respectable, reliable. He's good all the way through. All he is is like fragrant, valuable oil. And then she says, look, all the virgins love him. <laughs> all the other young women who are also looking for a spouse love him. He's a good catch. You know, sometimes a person will fall in love with someone else, and everyone else kind of on the sidelines is like, I don't really get it. You know, I don't, I'm kind of confused. You know, what does he see in her? What does she see in him? That's not the case with this man. She loves him and everyone else is like, yep, I get it. I understand why she does. And then in verse four, she makes a direct request of her beloved. She says, draw me after you, let us run. And then there's maybe a change of scene or something, possibly indicating her desire to join him in his private chambers, maybe remembering a time they'd spent together. It's kind of hard to say. But what it's clear in this, these first four verses is that she desires him and is unafraid to say it. She wants him for who she is. She enjoys him physically. She wants to run away with him. 
In Charlotte Bronte's classic novel, Jane Eyre, there's a famous line that goes like this, reader, I married him. And it sort of, it comes after this culmination of a long romance, and there's a difficult history, but that line sets Jane on a new path. She realized that her beloved, Lord Rochester, even though he was blind and kind of a shadow of his former self, that her heart was with him. Her emotional home was with him. She wanted to be with him. And that's the picture we get of the unnamed woman, that she desires her beloved in every way. She can't wait to tell the rest of us, reader, I married him. As I said in my introduction, often when it comes to romance, desire, sex in the church, we instinctively think of all the thou shalt nots. But what do we have here? We've got some thou shalls. (laughs) Thou thou shalt. Her desire for her beloved is celebrated. The others who come in partway through verse 4, they exalt, they rejoice with her in her love. Her, Her romantic desire, it's good and it's right. You know, in a dating relationship and in marriage, desire for each other should be part of the equation. You're not just assembling a sports team. You're like, I need someone to play point guard. You know, you're not, you're not just building a business. You, you're looking for a lifelong spouse. And so it's good and it's right. It's proper to, to have and to cultivate desire for each other. That's how God created us to be. He created us to desire each other, to feel want for another person. That desire was not a result of the fall. It's part of creation. It helps bind us to each other. Yet in some of the books I've read, some of the conversations I've had, it's clear that at times churches and pastors and other, other Christian influencers or writers or whatever, they, they have discouraged uh, men and women from expressing their desire. Somehow in the, in the desire to promote sexual ethics, we've told people, you know, stuff that desire down. It's dangerous. You, you, you can't trust it. I think some women have been given the message that men are out of control and so they need to be the one in the relationship to cool things off. But the Song of Songs starts with the desire of the woman. We don't actually hear from the man until, until later on. A woman is created by God with her own desires, and it's a mutual responsibility not to awaken love until it's time. But guess what? When the time is right, when marriage is on the horizon, which it is in the, in the, in the Song of Songs, desire should be allowed to awaken, to take root, and to bloom Again, I've noticed a pattern in counseling Christian couples that it is sometimes the case that for so long, young Christian couples have tried to to turn off their desires, to, to ignore them, to push them away, that sometimes when you get married, it's hard to turn them back on. Some of us feel like we have a hard wiring that tells us these desires are dangerous or sinful, even if you're already married. I mean, if you are married, think of it this way, could you speak as this woman does? You don't have to use her words. Maybe your husband doesn't use anointing oils. That's fine. Can you articulate your desire for the one you love? And look, of course, in the scriptures, lust is commanded against, sex outside of marriage commanded against. But this woman is not expressing her desire for men at large. She's expressing her desire for a specific man. Love is awakening, and it's right and good. Now, part three, his affirmation. After the others rejoice in her love, the woman continues to speak in verse 5. She says, I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Now, what's she saying? Well, the word in Hebrew for dark is the word for black, yet most scholars, or nearly all scholars, do not think this is a racial comment, an ethnic comment, but a social one. And if you look further at verse 6, she speaks about being forced by her brothers, or maybe her stepbrothers, the the sons of her mother, uh, to work outdoors. And she says, the sun has looked long upon me. 
So try to, get, try to get into this. If the woman were Middle Eastern, which is, you know, 99% likely or whatever, long hours in the sun would have turned her olive-colored olive skin quite dark. Now, in our culture, tanned skin, it's usually seen as desirable and healthy. Um, it means you are outdoorsy. Not so in that culture. Uh, the, those who were most tanned, those who had the darkest skin, were traditionally the poorest. Those who were being forced to work in the fields or vineyards, dark skin, tanned skin, was a mark of low social status, not beauty, not health. So what's going on here? Well, the woman on one hand is sort of confident. She refers to herself as lovely, but she's also a little bit self-conscious about the way she looks. She compares herself to the tents of Kedar, which I'm sure you're all aware of. No, uh, they're, they're Bedouin tents, which are made of this very dark, very coarse material. And the curtains of Solomon, the same thing, were very, very dark, almost black. She worries about her appearance, even though she considers her lovely, herself lovely. And interestingly, she's actually speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. She's kind of talking to the city girls, asking them not to stare at her. Maybe she's felt her, their eyes upon her, as she's likely a peasant girl from the countryside. And more to this point, she says, I've been working in the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And it's kind of a play on words. In the first sentence, she refers to an actual vineyard. She's been cultivating grapes or whatever. But in the second, she's using vineyard as a metaphor for her own body and appearance. And she acknowledges she hasn't had the time or energy or possibly ability to take care of herself as she'd like. Sounds sort of like a Cinderella sort of situation. She's worked so long and so hard, you know, she can't, she can't do what she wants for herself. And now she feels self-conscious about it. And really, she's speaking to her beloved about it. And in verse 7, you can see that she's directly asking him where he is. Where are you working today? Where did you take your sheep? She wants to come and find him because she's attracted to him. She wants to be with him. But also, I think, because she's looking for affirmation. She feels self-conscious. And the reference to veils near the end of verse 7 needs a bit of explaining too. See, female prostitutes would sometimes visit shepherds in their fields, and they were known for wearing veils. So the woman's telling her beloved, uh, tell me where you are so I won't feel like a prostitute wandering around in the fields. She doesn't want to waste her time. She doesn't want to feel awkward. So here's kind of the point. On one hand, we have this profound desire for love. We feel attracted to another. We feel an interest in, be in being loved. We want to be with our beloved. Yet, we also have profound insecurity. And we worry about the way we look. We worry that our body or our appearance is lacking in some way. Uh, the, the pressures of, because of the pressures of life, we haven't kept up with ourselves as well as we wanted. We know we don't look the same as we used to. And we want to know, is there someone who loves us? Is there someone who's attracted to us, even if we don't fit the stereotype? And this happens when you're single, before marriage. It happens after marriage too, though. And if you are here and you are single, I've wondered if any, if, or I'm sure you have wondered to yourself if someone will love you. Will someone find me attractive? Will someone desire me? And if you've been married for a while now, as age and children and life take their toll, perhaps you still wonder if your partner desires you. And isn't it fascinating that even as beauty standards have waxed and waned and, and tans are now in or whatever, that her worries are the same as ours, that we long for the one we love to tell us that we are lovely and desirable. Well, what happens next? Well, let me tell you who we never hear from. This, by the way, is you might need to pull out your, your Bible here for, uh, to get to these verses. But, but we never hear from the daughters of Jerusalem. These other women that she's worried about their opinion, we don't hear them speak. We don't hear their opinion. We don't hear their critiques of her skin tone. We don't see this woman held up against the stereotypes of beauty. 
What we hear is the voice of, of the man, the beloved. And what, you know what he calls her? We didn't read it together, but it's there. He calls her the most beautiful of women. He begins by affirming her. He tells her basically, you are lovely. I do find you beautiful. I do love you. And then he tells her, I do want you to stop in. <laughs> he says, just follow the tracks of my sheep. He responds to her desire by expressing his own. He does want her to come and visit. And then you, you didn't see it there, but he praises her beauty by comparing her to a horse. Now, I don't think this would pass for a compliment in our world, but kind of just try to stay in the poetry for a minute. Now, what, what comparison does he make? He compares her to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, you're like, it's not impressive. I don't think I'd like to be called a horse, but hold on. Pharaoh had the finest of horses. He had the strongest, the fastest, the most beautiful, the most free of blemish. Only the best for Pharaoh. And not only did he have amazing horses, but he dressed them up. They had gold and jewelry. They, they, they were brushed until they shone. When they would come trotting past or, or thundering past in the street, everyone would stop and stare. This is what the man is telling his beloved. He's telling her, you're strong and beautiful. You're, fitting for the you're fitted for the finest of settings. And then in verses 12 to 14, she, she reciprocates. She remembers this time that they'd, they'd been together and that her beloved was a sweet smell to her. Calls him a sachet of myrrh, that his presence is a perfume. It lights up a room. She says, too, she calls him basically a bouquet of flowers from this place called En Gedi, which is this oasis by the Red Sea. And so it's this mutual expression. They go back and forth of expressing admiration and love for each other. Now, what you're going to find out is that Song of Songs isn't going to be a great place for you to find compliments for your beloved. This isn't going to be a helpful book for your own personal content. You know, women aren't going to often be like uh, being compared to horses. Men, it's like, I'm not really thrilled about being called a bouquet of flowers or whatever. But what I want you to see is they are reassuring her uh, of their, uh, uh, he, he is reassuring her of her beauty and her radiance, her place in his world. And she is reassuring him of, of how much she loves to be with him, how wonderful he is to her. Her. Now let's recap what's happened. She expressed her desire. She expressed her insecurity, her desire to be loved. And what happened? The voice of her beloved reassured her. Who cares what the girls in Jerusalem think? I love you. Who cares what the other men think? I find you beautiful. Who cares what color your skin is? I love you. And she says the same. And I think I'd point out at this point that the Song of Songs would invite single people as they look for a partner, as they look for a spouse, to look beyond the stereotypes of beauty or an achievement. This man's not concerned with her work as a peasant. It's like, oh, you're working for minimum wage in the fields or whatever. That's not a big deal. He's not concerned about the color of her skin. He's attracted to her. And look, beauty and beauty standards will change. You may differ from what the daughters of Ottawa think is beautiful, but don't rule anyone out. What some have found is that their desires changed once they met their future spouse. But see also the importance of mutual assurance or mutual reassurance of desire and love. We're all fools when it comes to love. And we often need our beloved to remind us of their love for us and us them. This may come easy in the early days, but I would remind those of us who've been married for a few years or a few decades of its continuing importance. You don't need to write poetry. I mean, you might, but, but a healthy marriage is going to contain generous servings of, of admiration Reassurances of love. Now, I do have an important question, and we're wrapping up. I know, I know it's chilly out here. What, what if, right now, you wonder to yourself, what if I never find love? 
What if actually I come to the end of my life and, 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 I, and I look back and I realize I've searched for love and I've risked for love and I've fought for love, but love was always unrequited? Or what if you're wondering to yourself, you know, I found some love, but it never really scratched the itch. And my marriage was, was disappointing in some way. The desire I had for my spouse, it was either kind of fleeting or it was quenched by a flood of disappointment. Perhaps you just have some lingering question about love. What I would tell you is all human love and all human romantic love, though it's good and it's celebrated as we've been speaking about this morning, ultimately it can only be a signpost. Because whether you end up single or married, whether you have various degrees of frustration and contentment, we will all come to this text with these needs. We all, de we all desire things. We all need affirmation. We all love and want to be loved in return. And even if you're a person in the very best of marriages, you know the truth, that it's never enough. It can't be. The other person on the other side of, of your, your extremely awesome relationship, they can't give you everything you need. Desire will not be fully quenched. You will never be affirmed enough that you will never need to be affirmed again. So C.S. Lewis asked the famous question, okay, so what if I find in myself a desire for which nothing in the world can satisfy? Which is basically what we're asking. What if I find in myself a desire for, for affirmation or for love that, that never kind of gets, that itch never kind of gets scratched? He says, the only answer is, you were made for a different world. And that's extremely important, that God made you with desires and needs for affirmation and his desire to love and to be loved. And human relationships speak to that desire, but they can never quench it. They can only point us over the hill to a God who can. So you're married, you're unmarried, you're in a passionate relationship, you're in a distant relationship, you've been affirmed, you've been ignored. All of us need to return to the hill of Calvary to see one who can love us all the way down. See, look, if you pin your hopes on, being, uh, on desiring someone and being desired in return, you will chase that high for the rest of your life, you will never arrive. You pin all your self-worth on the affirmation of, of a significant other. You will be perpetually needy. You will always be let down. But if you can sink into the deep love that God has for you in Jesus Christ, not only will it meet the deep places of your soul, but it also give you the confidence and desire to affirm uh, like the man and the woman in the song do. See, when Christ has met you and saved you and spoken the words of life to you, then you don't need your spouse to meet all your needs. And the power for a romantic relationship actually comes from Christ. Because we realize there is one who desires us, not sexually, but purely in love. And he has forgiven us. He's made us new. And that gives us the ballast in the bottom of our boat, the center of gravity, then to move towards another human in love. Because we have been freely loved, we freely love. We are free to desire. We are free to affirm because Christ has loved us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. And we are grateful for this, this poetry that you've written to help us understand how human relationships can and ought to work together. Help us understand it. Help these truths to sink deep into our hearts. And I pray for those who are dating, those engaged, those married, that you would bring us to healthy places in these relationships, that we'd be able to, to, to desire and affirm each other uh, in ways that fit your design and in ways that you've called us to. Help us understand, though, most importantly, the love that you have for us in Christ. May that sink into our souls. May that provide us with the affirmation, the love that we are truly looking for. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.